Section 27 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. Edited by Charles W. Eliot. William Wordsworth. Preface to Lyrical Ballads, Part 2. To this knowledge which all men carry about with them, and to these sympathies in which, without any other discipline than that of our daily life, we are fitted to take delight, the poet principally directs his attention. He considers man and nature as essentially adapted to each other, and the mind of man as naturally the mirror of the fairest and most interesting properties of nature. And thus the poet, prompted by this feeling of pleasure which accompanies him through the whole course of his studies, converses with general nature with affections akin to those which, through labour and length of time, the man of science has raised up in himself by conversing with those particular parts of nature which are the objects of his studies. The science both of the poet and the man of science is pleasure, but the knowledge of the one cleaves to us as a necessary part of our existence, our natural and unalienable inheritance. The other is a personal and individual acquisition, slow to come to us, and by no habitual and direct sympathy connecting us with our fellow-beings. The man of science seeks truth as a remote and unknown benefactor. He cherishes and loves it in his solitude. The poet, singing a song in which all human beings join with him, rejoices in the presence of truth as our visible friend and hourly companion. Poetry is the breath and finer spirit of all knowledge. It is the impassioned expression which is in the countenance of all science. Emphatically may it be said of the poet, as Shakespeare hath said of man, quote, that he looks before and after, end quote. He is the rock of defense for human nature, an upholder and preserver, carrying everywhere with him relationship and love. In spite of difference of soil and climate, of language and manners, of laws and customs, in spite of things silently gone out of mind, and things violently destroyed, the poet binds together by passion and knowledge the vast empire of human society, as it is spread over the whole earth and over all time. The objects of the poet's thoughts are everywhere. Though the eyes and senses of man are, it is true, his favorite guides, yet he will follow wheresoever he can find an atmosphere of sensation in which to move his wings. Poetry is the first and last of all knowledge. It is as immortal as the heart of man. If the labors of men of science should ever create any material revolution, direct or indirect, in our condition, and in the impressions which we habitually receive, the poet will sleep then no more than at present. He will be ready to follow the steps of the man of science, not only in those general indirect efforts, but he will be at his side, carrying sensation into the midst of the objects of the science itself. The remotest discoveries of the chemist, the botanist, or mineralogist, will be as proper objects of the poet's art as any upon which it can be employed, if the time should ever come when these things shall be familiar to us, 
and the relations under which they are contemplated by the followers of these respective sciences shall be manifestly and palpably material to us as enjoying and suffering beings if the time should ever come when what is now called science thus familiarized to men shall be ready to put on as it were a form of flesh and blood the poet will lend his divine spirit to aid the transfiguration and will welcome the being thus produced as a dear and genuine inmate of the household of man it is not then to be supposed that any one who holds that sublime notion of poetry which i have attempted to convey will break in upon the sanctity and truth of his pictures by transitory and accidental ornaments and endeavour to excite admiration of himself by arts the necessity of which must manifestly depend upon the assumed meanness of his object what has been thus far said applies to poetry in general but especially to those parts of composition where the poet speaks through the mouths of his characters and upon this point it appears to authorize the conclusion that there are few persons of good sense who would not allow that the dramatic parts of composition are defective in proportion as they deviate from the real language of nature and are coloured by a diction of the poet's own either peculiar to him as an individual poet or belonging simply to poets in general to a body of men who from the circumstance of their compositions being in metre it is expected will employ a particular language it is not then in the dramatic parts of composition that we look for this distinction of language but still it may be proper and necessary where the poet speaks to us in his own person and character to this i answer by referring the reader to the description before given of a poet among the qualities there enumerated as principally conducing to form a poet is implied nothing differing in kind from other men but only in degree the sum of what was said is that the poet is chiefly distinguished from other men by a greater promptness to think and feel without immediate external excitement and a greater power in expressing such thoughts and feelings as are produced in him in that manner but these passions and thoughts and feelings are the general passions and thoughts and feelings of men and with what are they connected undoubtedly with our moral sentiments and animal sensations and with the causes which excite these with the operations of the elements and the appearances of the visible universe with storm and sunshine with the revolutions of the seasons with cold and heat with loss of friends and kindred with injuries and resentments gratitude and hope with fear and sorrow these and the like are the sensations and objects which the poet describes as they are the sensations of other men and the objects which interest them the poet thinks and feels in the spirit of human passions how then can his language differ in any material degree from that of all other men who feel vividly and see clearly it must be proved that this is impossible but supposing that this were not the case the poet might then be allowed to use a peculiar language when expressing his feelings for his own gratification or that of men like himself but poets do not write for poets alone but for men unless therefore we are advocates for that admiration which subsists upon ignorance and that pleasure which arises from hearing what we do not understand 
the poet must descend from this supposed height, and in order to excite rational sympathy, he must express himself as other men express themselves. To this it may be added, that while he is only selecting from the real language of men, or which amounts to the same thing, composing accurately in the spirit of such selection, he is treading upon safe ground, and we know what we are to expect from him. Our feelings are the same with respect to metre, for, as it may be proper to remind the reader, the distinction of metre is regular and uniform, and not, like that which is produced by what is usually called poetic diction, arbitrary, and subject to infinite caprices upon which no calculation whatever can be made. In the one case the reader is utterly at the mercy of the poet, respecting what imagery or diction he may choose to connect with the passion, whereas in the other the meter obeys certain laws to which the poet and reader both willingly submit because they are certain, and because no interference is made by them with the passion, but such as the concurring testimony of ages has shown to heighten and improve the pleasure which coexists with it. It will now be proper to answer an obvious question, namely, why, professing these opinions, have I written in verse? To this, in addition to such answer as is included in what has already been said, I reply, in the first place, because, however I may have restricted myself, there is still left open to me what confessedly constitutes the most valuable object of all writing, whether in prose or verse, the great and universal passions of men, the most general and interesting of their occupations, and the entire world of nature before me, to supply endless combinations of forms and imagery. Now supposing for a moment that whatever is interesting in these objects may be as vividly described in prose, why should I be condemned for attempting to superadd to such description the charm which, by the consent of all nations, is acknowledged to exist in metrical language? To this, by such as are yet unconvinced, it may be answered that a very small part of the pleasure given by poetry depends upon the metre, and that it is injudicious to write in metre, unless it be accompanied with the other artificial distinctions of style with which metre is usually accompanied, and that, by such deviation, more will be lost from the shock which will thereby be given to the reader's associations, than will be counterbalanced by any pleasure which he can derive from the general power of numbers." In answer to those who still contend for the necessity of accompanying metre with certain appropriate colours of style, in order to the accomplishment of its appropriate end, and who also, in my opinion, greatly underrate the power of metre itself, it might perhaps, as far as relates to these volumes, have been almost sufficient to observe that poets are extant, written upon more humble subjects, and in a still more naked and simple style, which have continued to give pleasure from generation to generation. Now, if nakedness and simplicity be a defect, the fact here mentioned affords a strong presumption that poems somewhat less naked and simple are capable of affording pleasure at the present day, and, what I wish chiefly to attempt at present, was to justify myself for having written under the impression of this belief. 
but various causes might be pointed out why, when the style is manly and the subject of some importance, words metrically arranged will long continue to impart such a pleasure to mankind as he who proves the extent of that pleasure will be desirous to impart. The end of poetry is to produce excitement in coexistence with an overbalance of pleasure. But, by the supposition, excitement is an unusual and irregular state of the mind. Ideas and feelings do not, in that state, succeed each other in accustomed order. If the words, however, by which this excitement is produced be in themselves powerful, or the images and feelings have an undue proportion of pain connected with them, there is some danger that the excitement may be carried beyond its proper bounds. Now the co-presence of something regular, something to which the mind has been accustomed in various moods and in a less excited state, cannot but have great efficacy in tempering and restraining the passion by an intertexture of ordinary feeling, and of feeling not strictly and necessarily connected with the passion. This is unquestionably true, and hence, though the opinion will at first appear paradoxical, from the tendency of metre to divest language in a certain degree of its reality, and thus to throw a sort of half-consciousness of unsubstantial existence over the whole composition, there can be little doubt but that more pathetic situations and sentiments, that is, those which have a greater proportion of pain connected with them, may be endured in metrical composition, especially in rhyme, than in prose. The metre of the old ballads is very artless, yet they contain many passages which would illustrate this opinion, and I hope, if the following poems be attentively pursued, similar instances will be found in them. This opinion may be further illustrated by appealing to the reader's own experience of the reluctance with which he comes to the re-perusal of the distressful parts of Clarissa Harlow, or the gamester, while Shakespeare's writings in the most pathetic scenes never act upon us as pathetic beyond the bounds of pleasure, an effect which, in a much greater degree than might at first be imagined, it is to be ascribed to small but continual and regular impulses of pleasurable surprise from the metrical arrangement. On the other hand, what it must be allowed will much more frequently happen, if the poet's words should be incommensurate with the passion, and inadequate to raise the reader to a height of desirable excitement, then, unless the poet's choice of his metre has been grossly injudicious, in the feelings of pleasure which the reader has been accustomed to connect with metre in general, and in the feeling, whether cheerful or melancholy, which he has been accustomed to connect with that particular movement of metre, there will be found something which will greatly contribute to impart passion to the words, and to effect the complex end which the poet proposes to himself. If I had undertaken a systematic defense of the theory here maintained, it would have been my duty to develop the various causes upon which the pleasure received from metrical language depends. Among the chief of these causes is to be reckoned a principle which must be well known to those who have made any of the arts the object of accurate reflection, namely, the pleasure which the mind derives from the perception of similitude in dissimilitude. This principle is the greatest spring of the activity of our minds, and their chief feeder. 
From this principle, the direction of the sexual appetite, and all the passions connected with it, take their origin. It is the life of our ordinary conversation, and upon the accuracy with which similitude in dissimilitude, and dissimilitude in similitude are perceived, depend our taste and our moral feelings. It would not be a useless employment to apply this principle to the consideration of metre, and to show that metre is hence enabled to afford much pleasure, and to point out in what manner that pleasure is produced. But my limits will not permit me to enter upon this subject, and I must content myself with a general summary. I have said that poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. It takes its origin from emotion recollected in tranquillity. The emotion is contemplated till, by a species of reaction, the tranquillity gradually disappears, and an emotion kindred to that which was before the subject of contemplation is gradually produced, and does itself actually exist in the mind. In this mood successful composition generally begins, and in a mood similar to this it is carried on. But the emotion of whatever kind, and in whatever degree, from various causes is qualified by various pleasures, so that in describing any passions whatsoever, which are voluntarily described, the mind will, upon the whole, be in a state of enjoyment." If nature be thus cautious to preserve in a state of enjoyment a being so employed, the poet ought to profit by the lesson held forth to him, and ought especially to take care, that, whatever passions he communicates to his reader, these passions, if his reader's mind be sound and vigorous, should always be accompanied with an overbalance of pleasure. Now the music of harmonious metrical language, the sense of difficulty overcome, and the blind association of pleasure which has been previously received from works of rhyme or metre of the same or similar construction, an indistinct perception perpetually renewed of language closely resembling that of real life, and yet in the circumstance of metre differing from it so widely, all these imperceptibly make up a complex feeling of delight, which is of the most important use in tempering the painful feeling always found intermingled with powerful descriptions of the deeper passions. This effect is always produced in pathetic and impassioned poetry, while in lighter compositions the ease and gracefulness with which the poet manages his numbers are themselves confessedly a principal source of the gratification of the reader. All that it is necessary to say, however, upon this subject, may be effected by affirming, what few persons will deny, that, of two descriptions, either of passions, manners, or characters, each of them equally well executed, the one in prose and the other in verse, the verse will be read a hundred times, where the prose is read once. Having thus explained a few of my reasons for writing in verse, and why I have chosen subjects from common life, and endeavoured to bring my language near to the real language of men, if I have been too minute in pleading my own cause, I have at the same time been treating a subject of general interest, and for this reason a few words shall be added with reference solely to these particular poems, and to some defects which will probably be found in them. 
I am sensible that my associations must have sometimes been particular instead of general, and that, consequently, giving to things a false importance, I may have sometimes written upon unworthy subjects, but I am less apprehensive on this account than that my language may frequently have suffered from these arbitrary connections of feelings and ideas with particular words and phrases, from which no man can altogether protect himself. Hence I have no doubt that, in some instances, feelings, even of the ludicrous, may be given to my readers by expressions which appeared to me tender and pathetic. Such faulty expressions, were I convinced they were faulty at present, and that they must necessarily continue to be so, I would willingly take all reasonable pains to correct. But it is dangerous to make these alterations on the simple authority of a few individuals, or even of certain classes of men. For where the understanding of an author is not convinced, or his feelings altered, this cannot be done without great injury to himself for his own feelings are his stay and support, and, if he set them aside in one instance, he may be induced to repeat this act till his mind shall lose all confidence in itself, and become utterly debilitated. To this it may be added, that the critic ought never to forget that he is himself exposed to the same errors as the poet, and perhaps in a much greater degree for there can be no presumption in saying of most readers that it is not probable they will be so well acquainted with the various stages of meaning through which words have passed, or with the fickleness or stability of the relations of particular ideas to each other. And, above all, since they are so much less interested in the subject, they may decide lightly and carelessly. Long as the reader has been detained, I hope he will permit me to caution him against a mode of false criticism which has been applied to poetry, in which the language closely resembles that of life and nature. Such verses have been triumphed over in parodies, of which Mr. Johnson's stanza is a fair specimen. I put my hat upon my head, and walked into the strand, and there I met another man whose hat was in his hand. Immediately under these lines, let us place one of the most justly admired stanzas of The Babes in the Wood. These pretty babes, with hand in hand, went wandering up and down, but never more they saw the man approaching from the town. In both these stanzas, the words, and the order of the words, in no respect differ from the most unimpassioned conversation. There are words in both, for example, the strand, and the town, connected with none but the most familiar ideas. Yet the one stanza we admit is admirable, and the other is a fair example of the superlatively contemptible. Whence arises the difference? Not from the metre, not from the language, not from the order of the words. But the matter expressed in Dr. Johnson's stanza is contemptible. The proper method of treating trivial and simple verses, to which Dr. Johnson's stanza would be a fair parallelism, is not to say, this is a bad kind of poetry, or this is not poetry, but this wants sense. It is neither interesting in itself, nor can lead to anything interesting. The images neither originate in that sane state of feeling which arises out of thought, nor can excite thought or feeling in the reader. 
this is the only sensible manner of dealing with such verses why trouble yourself about the species till you have previously decided upon the genus why take pains to prove that an ape is not a newton when it is self-evident that he is not a man one request i must make of my reader which is that in judging these poems he would decide by his own feelings genuinely and not by reflection upon what will probably be the judgment of others how common is it to hear a person say i myself do not object to this style of composition or this or that expression but to such and such classes of people it will appear mean or ludicrous this mode of criticism so destructive of all sound unadulterated judgment is almost universal let the reader then abide independently by his own feelings and if he finds himself affected let him not suffer such conjectures to interfere with his pleasure if an author by a single composition has impressed us with respect to his talents it is useful to consider this as affording a presumption that on other occasions where we have been displeased he nevertheless may not have written ill or absurdly and further to give him so much credit for this one composition as may induce us to review what has displeased us with more care than we should otherwise have bestowed upon it it is not only an act of justice but in our decisions upon poetry especially may conduce in a high degree to the improvement of our own taste for an accurate taste in poetry and in all other arts as sir joshua reynolds has observed is an acquired talent which can only be produced by thought and a long continued intercourse with the best models of composition this is mentioned not with so ridiculous a purpose as to prevent the most inexperienced reader from judging for himself i have already said that i wish him to judge for himself but merely to temper the rashness of decision and to suggest that if poetry be a subject on which much time has not been bestowed the judgment may be erroneous and that in many cases it necessarily will be so nothing would i know have so effectually contributed to further the end which i have in view as to have shown of what kind the pleasure is and how that pleasure is produced which is confessedly produced by metrical composition essentially different from that which i have here endeavoured to recommend for the reader will say that he has been pleased by such composition and what more can be done for him the power of any art is limited and he will suspect that if it be proposed to furnish him with new friends that can only be on condition of his abandoning his old friends besides as i have said the reader is himself conscious of the pleasure which he has received from such composition composition to which he has peculiarly attached the endearing name of poetry and all men feel an habitual gratitude and something of an honourable bigotry for the objects which have long continued to please them we not only wish to be pleased but to be pleased in that particular way in which we have been accustomed to be pleased there is in these feelings enough to resist a host of arguments and i should be the less able to combat them successfully as i am willing to allow that in order entirely to enjoy the poetry which i am recommending it would be necessary to give up much of what is ordinarily enjoyed 
but would my limits have permitted me to point out how this pleasure is produced many obstacles might have been removed and the reader assisted in perceiving that the powers of language are not so limited as he may suppose and that it is possible for poetry to give other enjoyments of a purer more lasting and more exquisite nature this part of the subject has not been altogether neglected but it has not been so much my present aim to prove that the interest excited by some other kinds of poetry is less vivid and less worthy of the nobler powers of the mind as to offer reasons for presuming that if my purpose were fulfilled a species of poetry would be produced which is genuine poetry in its nature well adapted to interest mankind permanently and likewise important in the multiplicity and quality of its moral relations from what has been said and from a perusal of the poems the reader will be able clearly to perceive the object which i had in view he will determine how far it has been attained and what is a much more important question whether it be worth attaining and upon the decision of these two questions will rest my claim to the approbation of the public appendix to lyrical ballads 1802 perhaps as i have no right to expect that attentive perusal without which confined as i have been to the narrow limits of a preface my meaning cannot be thoroughly understood i am anxious to give an exact notion of the sense in which the phrase poetic diction has been used and for this purpose a few words shall here be added concerning the origin and characteristics of the phraseology which i have condemned under that name the earliest poets of all nations generally wrote from passion excited by real events they wrote naturally and as men feeling powerfully as they did their language was daring and figurative in succeeding times poets and men ambitious of the fame of poets perceiving the influence of such language and desirous of producing the same effect without being animated by the same passion set themselves to a mechanical adoption of these figures of speech and made use of them sometimes with propriety but much more frequently applied them to feelings and thoughts with which they had no natural connection whatsoever a language was thus insensibly produced differing materially from the real language of men in any situation the reader or hearer of this distorted language found himself in a perturbed and unusual state of mind when affected by the genuine language of passion he had been in a perturbed and unusual state of mind also in both cases he was willing that his common judgment and understanding should be laid asleep and he had no instinctive and infallible perception of the true to make him reject the false the one served as a passport for the other the emotion was in both cases delightful and no wonder if he confounded the one with the other and believed them both to be produced by the same or similar causes besides the poet spake to him in the character of a man to be looked up to a man of genius and authority thus and from a variety of other causes this distorted language was received with admiration and poets it is probable who had before contented themselves for the most part with misapplying only expressions which at first had been dictated by real passion 
carried the abuse still further, and introduced phrases composed apparently in the spirit of the original figurative language of passion, yet altogether of their own invention, and characterized by various degrees of wanton deviation from good sense and nature. It is indeed true that the language of the earliest poets was felt to differ materially from ordinary language, because it was the language of extraordinary occasions. But it was generally spoken by men, language which the poet himself had uttered when he had been affected by the events which he described, or which he had heard uttered by those around him. To this language it is probable that metre of some sort or other was early superadded. This separated the genuine language of poetry still further from common life, so that whoever read or heard the poems of these earliest poets felt himself moved in a way in which he had not been accustomed to be moved in real life, and by causes manifestly different from those which acted upon him in real life. This was the great temptation to all the corruptions which have followed. Under the protection of this feeling, succeeding poets constructed a phraseology which had one thing, it is true, in common with the genuine language of poetry, namely that it was not heard in ordinary conversation, that it was unusual. But the first poets, as I have said, spake a language which, though unusual, was still the language of men. This circumstance, however, was degraded by their successors they found that they could please by easier means. They became proud of modes of expression which they themselves had invented, and which were uttered only by themselves. In process of time, meter became a symbol or promise of this unusual language, and whoever took upon him to write in meter, according as he possessed more or less of the true poetic genius, introduced less or more of this adulterated phraseology into his compositions, and the true and the false were inseparately interwoven, until, the taste of men becoming gradually perverted, this language was received as a natural language, and at length, by the influence of books upon men, did to a certain degree really become so. Abuses of this kind were imported from one nation to another, and with the progress of refinement this diction became daily more and more corrupt, thrusting out of sight the plain humanities of nature by a motley masquerade of tricks, quaintnesses, hieroglyphics, and enigmas. It would not be uninteresting to point out the causes of the pleasure given by this extravagant and absurd diction. It depends upon a great variety of causes, but upon none perhaps more than its influence in expressing a notion of the peculiarity and exaltation of the poet's character, and in flattering the reader's self-love by bringing him nearer to a sympathy with that character, an effect which is accomplished by unsettling ordinary habits of thinking, and thus assisting the reader to approach to that perturbed and dizzy state of mind, in which, if he does not find himself, he imagines that he is balked of a peculiar enjoyment which poetry can and ought to bestow. The sonnet quoted from Gray in the preface, except the lines printed in italics, consists of little else but this diction, though not of the worst kind, and indeed, if one may be permitted to say so, it is far too common in the best writers, both ancient and modern. 
perhaps in no way, by positive example, could more easily be given a notion of what I mean by the phrase poetic diction than by referring to a composition between the metrical paraphrase which we have of passages in the Old and New Testament, and those passages as they exist in our common translation. See Pope's Messiah throughout, Priors, did sweeter sounds adorn my flowing tongue, etc., etc., though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, etc., etc., 1 Corinthians chapter 13. By way of immediate example, take the following of Dr. Johnson. Turn on the prudent aunt thy heedless eyes, observe her labours sluggard, and be wise. No stern command, no monitory voice, prescribes her duties or directs her choice. Yet, timely provident, she hastes away, to snatch the blessings of a plenteous day. When fruitful summer loads the teeming plain, she crops the harvest and she stores the grain. How long shall sloth usurp thy useless hours, unnerve thy vigour, and enchain thy powers? While artful shades thy downy couch enclose, and soft solicitation courts repose, amidst the drowsy charms of dull delight, year chases year with unremitted flight, till want now following, fraudulent and slow, shall spring to seize thee like an ambushed foe. From this hubbub of words pass to the original, Go to the ant thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou rise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that travelleth, and thy want as an armed man. Proverbs chapter 6. One more quotation, and I have done. It is from Cowper's verses, supposed to be written by Alexander Selkirk. Religion, what treasure untold, resides in that heavenly word. More precious than silver and gold, or all that this earth can afford, but the sound of the church-going bell, these valleys and rocks never heard, nor sighed at the sound of a knell, or smiled when a sabbath appeared, ye winds that have made me your sport, convey to this desolate shore some cordial endearing report of a land i must visit no more my friends do they now and then send a wish or a thought after me oh tell me i yet have a friend though a friend i am never to see this passage is quoted as an instant of three different styles of composition the first four lines are poorly expressed some critics would call the language prosaic the fact is, it would be bad prose, so bad that it is scarcely worse in metre. The epithet, church-going, applied to a bell, and that, by so chaste a writer as Cowper, is an instance of the strange abuses which poets have introduced into their language, till they and their readers take them as matters of course, if they do not single them out expressly as objects of admiration. The two lines, ne'er sighed at the sound, etc., are, in my opinion, an instance of the language of passion wrested from its proper use, and, from the mere circumstance of the composition being in metre, applied upon an occasion that does not justify such violent expressions. And I should condemn the passage, 
though perhaps few readers will agree with me, as vicious poetic diction. The last stanza is throughout admirably expressed. It would be equally good whether in prose or verse, except that the reader has an exquisite pleasure in seeing such natural language so naturally connected with metre. The beauty of this stanza tempts me to conclude with a principle which ought never to be lost sight of, and which has been my chief guide in all I have said, namely, that in works of imagination and sentiment, for of these only have I been treating, in proportion as ideas and feelings are valuable, whether the composition be in prose or in verse, they require and exact one in the same language. Metre is but adventitious to composition, and the phraseology for which that passport is necessary, even where it be graceful at all, will be little valued by the judicious. End of section 27